0: So, uh, Mark Tucker, thank you so much for joining today's episode of Fishing for Problems. I'm excited to chat with you. Before uh, jumping into your uh, most recent book on high-performance school systems, can you tell the audience just a little bit about yourself, about your background in education and how you came to study school systems throughout the world?
1: Oh, my. That's a long story, most of which I will elide. Um, About... Hmm, in 1989, it was one year after I had created the organization that I ran until last year. uh, I assembled a group of fairly distinguished people, cabinet secretaries, governors, and so on. The question in front of us was how the United States, could prevail in international economic competition uh, to survive and prosper in what appeared to be a coming age of globalization. And we mounted a, a international, really global Study both of the economies of the leading nation, but in particular, the ways in which their education systems were organized to produce very high achievement for their students, high equity and and a, a, a system that was nevertheless efficient enough so that it didn't bankrupt the country. And we found as you might expect that there was a very close relationship between countries' success in educating their kids and their economic success. We have been pursuing those issues ever since. And, uh, and so I found myself deeply involved in trying to better understand over the, the last 30 years how countries Succeed or fail to succeed in educating their kids to high standards. That's what I have ended
0: up devoting most of my life to. And uh, since you've started studying this, uh, what big changes have you seen in the last uh, in the last thirty years?
1: That's a very good question. Um, it has many answers. Uh, the frightening thing that I have seen is more and more countries entering this of high performers. And the group of countries doing that, leaving the United States farther and
0: farther behind. And when you say farther and farther behind, what do you, what do you mean by that? Well, there are now, uh, uh, using the OECD PISA as
1: the measure, that is by far the most widely admired international comparison of student achievement. Using, using the PISA assessments as your metric, there are now more than 30 countries that outperform American students in mathematics on the order of 18 that outperform the United States in science. Quite a few that's outperform the United States in in reading. Uh, This is what PISA measures. If you look at the difference in performance between the typical American high school graduate and the graduates of of the students in the top 10 or 15 performing, study uh, countries, what you see is that the average student in the top performing countries graduates with the equivalent of two and a half to three years more education than the typical American high school graduate. In practical terms, what this actually ends up meaning is that when we send a typical American high school graduate off to what we call college, a community college or a typical state college, what the American student is doing is going into an institution called college, which is offering a program comparable to the program offered in high school in the top performing countries. They're not going to
0: college at all in global terms. And so beyond the obvious reasons, why why is that a problem that we're falling behind?
1: Well, uh, there are a number of reasons it's a problem. I'll give you the top level. If you look at what has been happening since the 1970s in terms of globalization and advancing technology, you see a world turned upside down. Prior to the 1970s, most people in the United States, workers, were competing with workers in the same metropolitan area, in the same region, maybe in the same state, certainly with other workers in the United States. But beginning in the 1970s, that all changed. It became so inexpensive to ship things anywhere in the world that manufacturers realized that they could have the things that they had been making in the United States made for them by people in other parts of the world who charged, and this is literally true, anywhere between one-tenth and one-one-hundredth of what American manufacturing workers made at the time. If they didn't take advantage of that, if they didn't ship their manufacturing jobs to the countries that could do the same work for much less, they went out of business. Those were the choices that they faced. And so hundreds and hundreds of thousands and then literally millions of jobs that had been done by Americans from time immemorial left this country. At the same time, in the first round, really, of intelligent technology, uh, we were automating all kinds of work here in the United States that really involved only fairly routine skills. So when we went to the gas station, (laughs) I remember going to the gas station in the 50s and 60s, and you went in and somebody pumped your gas for you, and they washed your windshield for you, and they washed off your headlights, and all that. But beginning in the 70s, all that went away and you pumped your own gas. And the machine charged you for it. It accepted your credit card and it registered how much it was and it sent it through an automatic billing process and they debited your credit card. All those jobs went away. I could, we don't have enough time for me to go through all the other (laughs) jobs. Just like that, that also disappeared. What most people don't understand is that for every job that was shipped overseas because somebody could do it for less, there were 10 jobs that were being automated because the machines could do it for less. How did that happen? It wasn't just that these other folks in other parts of the world worked for less money. There was another, even more important reason after the second world war we were the best educated country in the world we had by far the best educated workforce as measured by the number of years of education that the average worker had and those were the people who were doing the manufacturing jobs and pumping the gas and and making change in the retail stores and doing the calculations in the back office of the insurance companies these were maybe sixty percent of the American jobs, and we had we had in the in the in the 1900s, and from, really from the 1850s on, led the world in compulsory uh, elementary school education, compulsory uh, uh, secondary school education, and then we had invented mass higher education with the GI Bill after the Second World War. We, we had by far the best educated workforce and we dominated the global economy. What happened after that was really important. Other countries did the same. So it wasn't just that people in, 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 in other parts of the world would work for less money. The fact of the matter was they were doing as good a job as we were in educating their kids through elementary school and even into high school. That's what changed. And so we no longer had the best educated kids in the world. What we actually had was a fairly poorly educated workforce that was charging a lot more for its services than other equally well-educated workforces in other parts of the world. That's what changed. And I think most American educators have no idea of that. They don't quite understand what's happened to our country. And what's happened to our country is the rest of the world has caught up to us in education and has not only caught
0: up to us, it has surged ahead. Yeah, and all that historical context is is so helpful you know a couple of things one uh, i live in portland and out in oregon uh, you still cannot pump your own gas so we still have uh, folks who work at the gas stations who pump pump the gas for you uh, and i've been watching the queen's gambit from uh, based in the 1960s and uh, a couple episodes you see the main character go into a local department store and i remember doing that as a kid uh, and those are uh, no longer no longer around nope. No, so they aren't.
1: You know, I mean, <laughs> the, the, the mall is a thing of the past unless it has become an entertainment center. that That's what's happened to the malls that are surviving. And, and people are just sitting at home and they're ordering all this stuff from Amazon. And, and once again, you, you're seeing, I don't know, I could tell endless stories. I told some in the book, probably... The one that grips most of the readers is the story of Eastman Kodak, which employed tens of thousands of people uh, turning people's photographs into uh, 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 negatives that could then be used to produce prints that they shared with people. And then a little group of people, fewer than 20, created a little organization that was able to take the pictures that you made with your phone and enable you to share them with people all over the world instantly, just like that. And this company of tens of thousands of people that had been supporting people all over the United States decade after decade after decade disappeared. Disappeared
0: and I took all its jobs with them. So I have one other question before getting into your book, uh, because I want to spend the bulk of our time there. You mentioned the, the PISA. Are there any other metrics that you've used to compare the U.S. schooling system to other schooling systems throughout the world? And if there aren't any metrics, are there any that you think would be useful to add depth to you know the, 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 the focus of PISA as like an academic um, assessment?
1: There, there, are, there are four that I pay attention to, and I think a number of other people do, too. Uh, certainly the most prominent among them is the PISA assessment. It's done by the OECD based in Paris. Uh, it, it, over 70 countries are now involved in the assessment, and very shortly it will be over 100. And they, they, they principally assess, as I said earlier, um, uh, reading mathematics and science. Uh, the OECD has another survey, which um, uh, people in the United States are much less aware of. It actually began at ETS in the United States, but was then turned over uh, to, the, um, to the OECD. And this is a survey uh, of, uh, of young adults in the workforce, uh, excuse me, of adults in the workforce, but it is a survey of their reading uh, and mathematics ability and uh and so it's a it, it is a very good assessment of of the basic skills that workers in workforces have. This one is actually devastating uh because in the more recent uh the the, the acronym is PIAC, P-I-A-A-C. You'll find it on the OECD uh website. And uh what that survey most recently showed was that of all of the workforces studied in different countries that decided to participate in the study, the American workers, uh, I, I'm sorry, let me, let me back up just a minute. What I'm about to share with you is the data from a reanalysis of the PIAC report done by ETS. And it, what it focused on was the uh, millennial workers in these workforces because these are the workforce members who are over the next 10 or 15 years going to determine the competitiveness of these economies. And what that uh, uh, reanalysis by ETS of the OECD PIAAC data showed was that of all the countries studied, the United States was either last or tied for last in every single arena that was measured by the OECD, stunning. And among the things that were measured by the OECD was the ability of um, young workers to use whatever they had learned about the use of information technology to solve practical problems. What's stunning about that is that uh, the data show that the United States spends more on instructional technology, at least at the time of that study, than any other country on the face of the earth. But yet our workers are less able to use the technology to solve problems than any of the other countries studied. Those two two were done by the OECD. Uh, then there is uh, a, a, a very well-known um, uh, set of uh, studies of mathematics and science, um, and, and that, that is a, a study that actually uh, preceded by quite a few years of the development of, uh, of, the, of the PISA tests by OECD. The, those assessments have been around. For quite a long time, at one point they were named uh, the Third International Mathematics and Science Study. The same acronym is now used, but because it's long after the third, <laughs> they have <laughs> the acronym. Uh, and the last is the PIRLS study. P-I-R-L-S. It's a it's a study of reading um, ability among nations. Um, both of these studies, the Pearl study and the uh, uh, um, the one I just mentioned, the the the, the Tim study, um, are very well done, but they involve many fewer countries than uh, than the, than the Tim study, um, and, and, and so less attention is paid to them. But they are worth looking at. But I must say that the the data that you get from all four studies is consistent with what I told you about the findings from the PISA study.
0: Thank you, and I'll link uh, link those in the, in the show notes. Um, so uh, sure. if anybody's interested in uh, looking at those, they can access them that way. Um, so let's transition to, uh, to your book uh, because I think it's, it's a fascinating book um, and uh, it was a good read. Uh, so you start, the book by saying that there's never been a more frustrating time to be a school leader in the united states whether you are a superintendent of schools a central office executive or a school principal that's because the system designed a century ago to solve a very different set of problems than the ones the nation now faces does not work anymore that's a direct quote from your book and granted the situation has changed a bit due to COVID, um, but i would imagine you still agree with this statement Uh, Why do you start your book with this? Why is it so frustrating to be a school leader in the
1: US? (laughs) Well, for the reason that I I very briefly summarized there, which is to say that, uh, we have a system in the United States for public education that was invented in more or less its current form about a hundred years ago. And this is in the in the early 20th century, it, and it was a it was a time when the United States was on its way to becoming the world's most important most um, most important economic power, it, and it was doing it, uh, it, it, and that was largely because the the United States had really invented and then certainly more fully exploited than other countries, the mass production model of manufacturing. And we we became a very attractive destination for people from all over the world who were looking to improve their standard of living um, and the future for their families and they arrived in the midst of a booming economy. And what those people, what people needed to participate in that economy was basic literacy. Many of them couldn't speak our language. If they did, their command of mathematics was was very small. They often came from countries where they weren't very well educated in their own country in the first place. Many many couldn't read very well, and 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 so they were coming into a country where where and it was at that time that that uh, we were making a secondary education uh, compulsory. Uh, there were very few colleges and universities, uh, and so the demand was to give kids basic literacy and practical skills and to turn them into Americans. I mean, that's, that's the way they viewed the, the challenge at the time. And it was an enormous challenge. And, and we, we, in order to do that, we needed an enormous number of school teachers. It was a, it was a world in which there were very few college educated people at all. So we basically created institutions called normal schools that turned out teachers who had about two years more education than their students did. And that was all they needed because the, 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 the kind of education that was required was not particularly demanding. A small number of those kids in highly favored communities went on to colleges and a small number of them became the professionals in that early time and the senior managers eventually. Although at that point, many of the senior managers didn't have a whole lot of education themselves. That, it it was also a time when it was um, enormously to our advantage to have a highly local system of education, local initiative, was responsible for providing schools raise money locally, deciding on the curriculum and all the rest of it. Why was that an advantage? Because there were a lot of places that weren't interested. But they but the places that were interested weren't held back by a having a national education system, all of which had to be brought along in order to get anything useful done. So really wanted to create a, a decent education system for their kids, they could do it had plenty of latitude to do it. We were a country then. Uh, the cities, they were big in getting bigger, but they were nothing like the cultuses that they are now. Uh, an awful lot of people lived out in the country. Uh, you had rich people and poor people living together. You had a lot of community strength. I, I could go on, but the, the point of all this is that were great strengths in 1910 have turned out to be enormous disadvantages to us now and um we're a system that was organized to produce basic literacy on a mass basis we're actually still organized to do that we we wound up with a system where people And this was really in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, when all of this happened, uh, where our commitment to localism turned into a system in which people with money could congregate together, create their own school districts, raise tons of money to get the state's best teachers, but with very low tax rates, because they could concentrate all the the rich people in one place. And that left poorer people in the position where they had to pay much higher tax rates to raise much less money and get teachers who were not as good. It goes on. Our advantage in creating normal schools before much of the rest of the world did turned into be a disadvantage when those normal schools turned out to be very low status institutions in the growing university hierarchy and people with ambition and a a strong education didn't wanna become teachers. So what I've watched is other countries who have very different systems for recruiting their teachers getting a much higher share of high performing high school students than we do. I've watched other countries where the money collected for education is collected at the state level, not the local level. And there's a whole lot more equity because the state sees an obligation, not just to share the money equally, that's not it. What they're trying to do is to set high standards for everybody so they provide more resources to poor kids than to rich kids. So everybody can achieve at a high level. I I could go on, but these are some of the ways in which what worked so well for us a hundred years ago has turned into one liability after another.
0: And how do that? How, how do those uh, liabilities manifest themselves in the lives of school leaders out there? Um, just sort of, you know, sticking with that quote, the the fact that it is so frustrating in your, you know, estimation to be uh, a school leader um, today. Can you, you know, talk about more specifics about those liabilities and
1: yeah, the actual sure. practical
0: implications of them?
1: Uh, again, all of this is in contrast to countries that have high performance. But uh, if you're a, if you're a, if you're a school system leader now, uh, in 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 one of our big cities, you are you are typically facing concentrations of poor, sometimes very poor people, um, whose prospects are dismal, who live in a in a in in an often not always but often in a situation of constant violence and whose, whose, whose needs are enormous um, and um, often surrounded by suburbs where people make a lot more money, where the levels of violence are almost zero, where the needs of the kids are far less, and and, and you don't have the resources to even begin to cope. Um, on a global scale, this is the reverse of what you find. <laughs> In most of the rest of the world, um, you find that the cities are far ahead of the countryside. You don't have these concentrations of poverty. Uh, you don't have the sense of hopelessness in, in many of the inner cities that we often find in those cities that you often find here in the United States, all of this is a function of the way our of the way we finance our schools. If you if you if you live in, uh, let, let me just step back just a second. If you are facing a situation in which. Um, You are in a country that is recruiting its teachers from the middle to the bottom of the range of kids who go from our high schools into our colleges and universities. In the top performing countries, that's not the case. You are in those countries getting your teachers from the middle to the top of the distribution of high school graduates. In the United States now, school leaders are facing a situation in which um, prior to COVID, uh, the number of applications to schools of education in the United States were pitching down very fast. Fewer and fewer kids wanted to become teachers, high school graduates and and college students deciding which professional school they wanted to enroll in. That was before COVID. Now with COVID, that, that downward push in, in the number of kids who want to become teachers has been rapidly accelerating so you y- you have a smaller and smaller pool of kids who want to be teachers and they are coming from a lower and lower range of high school graduates you, you are you are in a situation in which you um, It is extremely hard to take advantage of many of the ideas that have been developed by the top-performing countries, because of the way our systems are structured. So you've got, in the United States, um, very weak state departments of education, which have which which have a mandate to improve education in the state but they have a very thin staff and they can't provide much help. In the top performing countries, that's not the case at all. They they get much more help in developing a strong curriculum, in training their teachers, in, in getting the best research to the schools, on and on. In the United States, we have developed a system because in the early years, our teachers were thought to be young women who who, who were required to resign their jobs when they got pregnant, we built systems uh, with very large central offices, much larger than is the case in most of the top performing countries in the world. So, So in effect, what happened was that the more capable people in our schools went to the central office In those countries, the more capable people stay in the schools because there are so many people in the central office telling teachers what to do, (laughs) unlike these other countries, teaching is a much less attractive job. These are structural features of our system that have been with us for a very long
0: time. And the the company that I work for is attempting to address some of those problems one being how to keep teachers in the classroom more by uh, you know providing additional financial incentives for them to stay in the classroom one of the things that we see is uh, you know school school teachers who are good at what they do, naturally get funneled into leadership positions even if they're not particularly interested in those leadership positions but there are significant financial incentives for them to move out of the classroom and uh i'm curious to hear just what you think about that the need to uh, you know continue to think about ways to keep teachers you know in in those schools as opposed to in those central offices
1: well, uh, yeah, I, it, uh, my, my view about that goes back to a comment I made a few minutes ago about our system having been shaped in the age of, mass, of the mass production economy. In the mass production economy, you are either part of management or you're part of labor. And um, as soon as you leave the classroom, you have left labor and become part of management if you are part of labor the culture in our country is one in which in which all teachers are feel that they are best served if they are all treated in the same way that is the mass production system if you look at country places like singapore and shanghai what you see is that they <laughs> in those the people who lead those systems came to the united states and they asked themselves how is the rendering of professional services engineers doctors architects organized what is the most modern best and most productive way of organizing them and what they and what they what they discovered was that they are all organized on a very, very different model. And that model is a model in which one progresses through a career. One starts out as a novice, one gets better, one starts to move up. As one acquires expertise in a law firm, you become a partner, you eventually become a senior partner, and you have a shot at being a managing partner. All these people are attorneys, They haven't moved from being somebody right out of college into management, they're all attorneys. And if you're in medicine, whether you run the hospital or you just joined as a beginning physician, you're a doctor, right? So what they did with the way they organized the school, two things, very, very important. The first was they require their teachers to be in front of kids for a small fraction of the time that we require our teachers to be in front of kids. What are they doing with the time they're not in front of of kids? They are working with each other in teams. Some of those teams are working to create in a very systematic way, much better curriculum for the kids, curriculum that will work for the particular group of kids they've got in their school and work really well some of them are working on increasing, on, on producing teaching methods that produce much better results. Some of them are working, um, are working uh, and, and those groups are order, organized by subject matter. Other groups are organized by the grade that they're uh, teaching in. And in those, in, when those teams meet, what they're doing is identifying kids who start, are just starting to fall behind And in their meetings, they pool their knowledge about those kids trying to figure out whether the problem is the kid can't read or the problem is they don't have glasses or the problem is their family is falling apart or the problem is the violence on the streets and the fact that their brother just died. It could be any of these things, right? They pool their knowledge about what the problem is. They figure out what they think the most likely uh, 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 diagnosis is and then they designate a member of their group to go and work on that and bring it back to the group to see what happens. They, they're doing this all the time. They, they're not waiting until their kids until the end of the year for a test that shows the kids are so far behind that it's a mountain to get back. They're doing it in real time. Another way that they use that extra time is to, yeah, is to spend a lot of it with individual kids who need extra help maybe before school, maybe during the lunch hour, maybe after school, maybe on the weekend, or with a small group of kids who need the same kind of help. So they're, they're, they have the same amount of time they had before, but they're using it very, very differently. They're also spending a lot of time in each other's classrooms. Some of it is to, is to critique a curriculum unit that they all worked on when it's being demonstrated by one of them, Others because a teacher has a reputation for doing something particularly well and they wanna learn from them and so on. What that is combined with a very different way of organizing a teacher's career. So now imagine that you're a a brand new teacher. You've just been hired. You would typically in those countries spend a year to two years under the direct supervision of a master teacher who is released from a good deal of her teaching load in order specifically to mentor, train, and develop these new teachers. So you are spending time watching that teacher teach and that teacher is watching you teach and, and, and coaching you all the way, very intense. As part of that, you as a novice join some of these teams. You Learn how to be a team member and a strong contributor. Over the course of your career, you move from being a novice to a practicing teacher, fully licensed, and then you start to move up. You become a leader of teams, and then you become a leader of leaders of teams. The top of that is the master teacher. And there might be only one or two or three, in a school. In Shanghai, the top is a sister teacher, where that teacher is so good that they are the lead teachers in schools that are attached to universities where, 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 where teachers first go to college. And they are actually members, full members of the university faculty, as well as of the school and school district. After you achieve proficiency as a teacher, you can decide whether you wanna go into administration, whether you wanna go up to master teacher, or whether you wanna go into a specialty that might get you into the Ministry of Education. All the way along, as you acquire expertise, and that expertise is demonstrated, you get more status, you get more responsibility, you get more authority and you get more pay. It's the opposite of the American system. In the American system, you're all the same. Doesn't matter whether you do a good job or a bad job. Doesn't matter whether you keep developing your expertise or you just stop and do the same thing over and over again. In these systems, expertise is everything. And what is crucial about this is that in the system I just described to you, you not only have an enormous incentive to get more expertise, you have an enormous incentive to share it with others. And what that means is that the school is getting better and better and better at what it's doing, not just the individual teachers, but the whole school is getting better all the time. It's a design for that.
0: You have a, a positive feedback loop and almost a one plus one equals three type of situation.
1: So it's it's not it's not a monetary incentive to teachers to stay in the classroom. It's 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 a whole system of organization and management that produces that result.
0: Of course, yeah. And the, the financial piece is one component of it, but as you have uh, so eloquently alluded to, there's a lot more to it than just paying teachers a little bit more. That's right. Well, so you talk a lot about systems, we've talked about teachers. Um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, school leaders, uh, district leaders, state leaders, system leaders. And it's this question is based on an idea that you present in your book that I found to be particularly interesting. Um, it's, It's a unique perspective on the role of the system leader. And, you know, You reference um, Elon Musk's attempt to create a rocket for commercial space travel. You write that Musk, and you quote, needed not just a good design, but a fundamentally different design, one that would get top-notch results for much less money. You later write that, quote, well-constructed systems are no accident. They are designed, which means that they have designers. And at the end of your book, you state that the primary role of a school leader should be chief designer. So this is, I think, a, a unique perspective on what the role of the school leader should be so why is it important that a system leader should act as a chief designer as opposed to you know the role that they're playing right now as you know primarily a, a manager of other people?
1: Well the answer to that is very simple. the system that we have from coast to coast is not working. And uh, what the uh, I know most school people don't like to hear this, but what the data show is that putting more money into the system that we have doesn't produce better results. And that finding, by the way, is not just a finding for the United States; it's global. The, the, the over, if you look at the if you look at the United States over the last uh, thirty or forty years, what you see is that the cost per student, uh, the cost of educating a student in the United States on average has more than doubled in real dollars. That's after accounting for inflation. But as long as we have had NAEP, the achievement of high school kids in reading and mathematics, the two core basic skills, hasn't changed at all. So what we've managed to do is to double the real cost of educating our kids since since NAEP was first put in place more than 40 years ago without, without improving the outcome. What that is a sign of is that the problem isn't the amount of resources, the problem is the way they're used it turns out that we actually spend more money than most of the countries with, with much higher student performance per student than they do. If you, if you think about that for, for a minute, the only reasonable conclusion is it's the system that's the problem. It's the way we're spending the money. It's the way the system is structured, which comes back to the point I was making earlier. Our system is structured to produce basic skills in people who don't have them with a a minority going on for more. The question is how to create a very different kind of system, why? Because intelligent technology automation is taking the bottom half of the jobs. Whoa, what does that mean? That means that about half the kids who are coming out of our high schools can look forward to hardly any future at all, unless we educate them to much higher standards. The information I just shared with you says, we aren't gonna solve that problem by spending more money in our schools. The only possible way to solve it is by redesigning the system. So then the question is, who's gonna do the redesign? And, And what I said in the book was, That's you. That's the people reading the book. That's the superintendents of schools. That's the school boards. That's the top people in the school district. It's the central office staff. It's the principals. It's the heads of the teachers unions. These are the people. These are our education professionals. So do the education professionals want somebody else to redesign the schools? I doubt it. Well, if they don't want somebody else to redesign the schools, then it's their job to do it, and that's the answer
0: to your question. So let's get into some of the how of of that, because you know you referenced uh, in your you know talking about other school systems and the roles that teachers play, the, the the various hierarchies, the opportunities they have to take on new roles, new responsibilities, to increase authority. I know uh, one example, um, and I, I'm not sure it was in your book or if, um, if, if I read it somewhere else, but Uh, teachers in Japan spend much uh, less time face-to-face with students than they do in the U.S. They have what you described, much more common planning time, um, time to uh, develop curriculum, time to address specific issues that are going on with students that they are interacting with. How do we actually, how do we get there? How do we change the American schooling system to become more like those other schooling systems? And maybe it's maybe it's not necessarily more like those, but to improve upon itself. Um, and, you know, a part of that too, I'm curious how you think about COVID uh, as a potential tool to help transform the American schooling system as well.
1: Good questions. So uh, the way I think about that is the following. I think It is extremely hard to change a social institution, especially one like schools that people think they understand and and, and about which they have very strong feelings unless it seems to them that it is far more dangerous to do something very different than to continue doing what they have been doing. And we are nowhere near that threshold. This is what I mean by that. Let's just look at three very different kinds of American families. In our wealthy school districts, you have have parents that are being very well served or believe they are being very well served by the system that's already in place. It's their kids who get the best teachers in the state. It's their kids who have the best facilities. It's their kids who have the strongest curriculum. It's their kids who have the best chance of getting into the most exclusive universities and from the most exclusive universities to the best jobs. So what incentive do they have for redesigning the system? Question number one. The next chunk of parents, if you will, are the folks in the middle. They're not the people I'm about to talk about. That is the people who live in inner cities or out in rural areas where the schools are obviously distressed. They're the people who live in most suburban schools. And they, they watch, the, <laughs> they, they read, some of them do, newspapers and read magazines and CTV, and, and they get a general picture which persuades them that the schools in the country as a whole are in trouble. But year after year, they report to the pollsters that they think their own schools are pretty darn good. And and why do they, just as you did, people laugh when, when I say that, because
0: they know it's true. Yeah, I'm, I'm familiar with that data. Yeah.
1: The question, of course, is why? And I think there's a perfectly good reason why. If their parents, they see their kids bringing home work, homework to do, that asks them to do stuff that seems more complicated and difficult than what they had to do in the same subject at the same grade level when they were in school. And their kids are getting A's and B's. They reasonably conclude from that that their kids are doing really well. Why wouldn't they, right? So they have two messages. The one they get from the TV that says that the system as a whole isn't very good and they internalize that. And the other message that their own kids are doing fine. Thank you very much. So for different reasons, they come to the same conclusion that the wealthy parents come to. Our schools are doing okay. We need to, the the actual message the second group gets is we need to change the schools, but not our schools. So we need to change the schools for the poor kids or the black kids or the brown kids, but not for my kids. And then we have the kids who are poor, black, brown, and and, uh, generally disadvantaged living in the inner city. And many kids, many of whom are white, who are living out in rural areas, whose schools aren't, are, are, not very good. And in many of those places, the parents are deeply aware of that, but they don't have much political power. So they're not about to change the schools because they can't. And um, they, will, they will make out as best they can, but their options are limited. That's, that I think, Matt, is the challenge. And I don't think it's gonna be overcome until American parents see the link between the way the economy is functioning and the prospects that their kids have. But the kids in the wealthy communities, the parents in the wealthy communities aren't gonna support significant changes in the structure of the education system unless they begin to realize that the failures of our education system are gonna bring down the whole country, which is true. They will bring down the whole country, but we aren't gonna change the system until the wealthy people who have the most power in the society end up believing that. And they're not gonna believe that until they see that their own economic and political welfare is really threatened unless everybody is learning at high levels. Why? I told you why. Because they're doing really well in the system as it is now, as they see it. So they have to come to the conclusion, I think, with the right information, that that's a mirage. That they're gonna end up having to surround themselves with police to protect themselves if they don't do something for other people's kids to succeed that they are not doing now. I don't think that link has been made by hardly any of our political leaders and by our intellectual leaders. Most people just don't understand that link. They don't understand how it works. They don't understand that much of the political grief this country is now experiencing is because so many people in our country no longer have an education that will allow them to survive and prosper. And that's going to get worse. And it's everybody's business. That is also true of the second group that I mentioned. They too don't, what they don't understand is that the education that was good enough for them is no longer good enough for their kids. Precisely because so many other children in other parts of the world now know what their kids know and they charge much less for their labor. That's the connection that has to be made and people are not making it. Now, you asked me a moment ago, what does a leader have to do if the leader is going to be a designer? And the answer to that question is, they won't get permission to redesign the system until their community believes that it has to be redesigned. And so the first job of a leader is to do what I was just talking about, to have a conversation in the whole community about the future of their kids and their community and jobs. The leader has to make the link that I've just been making for the people in the community, so that they can see how far those kids have to go in order to have a chance of surviving and prospering in a very different world. The leader has
0: to be an educator. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot to unpack there. It seems to, that last comment, I mean, you seem to imply that the the job of the school leader is highly political. Do you agree it with is. that?
1: <laughs> I, that's my view. It always has been. Um,
0: um and th- what you, what you just described is an argument that I've made frequently to, uh, to my, <laughs> to my, to my mother, when we have conversations about, uh, some changes that are needed in the, in the K-12, system is that folks in that first group need to recognize that it is not uh, a zero-sum game that mm-hmm. uh, that uh, i mean to you know simplify it like rising tide raises all all boats um, mm-hmm. and uh, i'm just not sure that 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 connection is made you you have this belief in a zero-sum game that uh, you know other other students being educated as well as my kid is going to uh, remove those opportunities that my kid will have, and I want that, you know, comparative advantage. And, and you see it. Uh, I mean, I feel like the the recent um, uh, college admission scandal of uh, folks who already had uh, a huge leg up with their kids uh, were trying to find an additional advantage by basically paying people to doctor their uh, their kids' high school transcripts.
1: That's right.
0: Absolutely right. Um, so, uh, you know, we're coming up on time and I want to be respectful of your time. What do you see? I, I I brought up COVID briefly, but I do want to know uh, or hear from you what, what your thoughts are on how COVID could be used as an opportunity to begin to, um, to instantiate some of that change that you've talked about. Like, is it an opportunity to create some real systems change or, do you feel like it's just gonna be sort of business as usual once we you know, hopefully return to some semblance of uh, normality?
1: Huh. There are many possibilities. We'll see what happens. Um, what I see happening now is, uh, is a situation in which COVID is greatly exacerbating the differences in opportunities for kids. Where I live here in rural Maine, uh, there are many schools which which are okay. Um, And they have been good enough for many Mainers for a long time, but They have a long way to go to meet the kind of requirements I was just sharing with you. In many of those communities, those kids are now getting, by the internet, half an hour of math and half an hour of reading in their elementary schools, and that's it imagine what is going to happen after a year or a year and a half of that. I see much the same thing happening in a number of our urban communities for somewhat different reasons. I I mean the the technology issues are different uh, and and so on, but they end up with the same result. In in many of the urban communities, kids just have no access at all to the internet, or they're, they're, the parents or parent or guardian just isn't in a position to, to monitor and support them during the day. They're on their own. And so those kids are just not being schooled at all at all. School officials can't find the kids. At the other end of the spectrum, are professionals that I talk to, friends of mine, who are able to work at home because it's the nature of their work and it's fine with their employer. They are for the first time seeing the kinds of assignments that their kids get because they are for the first time sent to the parents. And very often the parents are appalled at what their kids are being asked to do. And they are greatly supplementing the education that their kids would have gotten had they been in person in school with instruction at a much higher level than they would have gotten if there had been no COVID at all. And a number of these parents that I've talked to seeing what their kids are actually getting are now looking for private school alternatives for their kids. They're banded together with other similar parents. To see what they can do. This is horrifying to me, honestly. I, I mean, I, it, 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 I, I, don't have, I, I don't have a way of gauging how many such parents there are at the upper end, and I and the data on what's happening at the lower end and are not very good either. The schools are getting better. I, I don't, by the way, mean in any way to suggest that the people in the schools have done a bad job. They've been heroic yep. in the response
0: yep. Yep.
1: to this. Totally unexpected intervention in their lives. they My daughter-in-law, who is an elementary school teacher, gets up early in the morning and often works till midnight, trying to, trying to do whatever she can to help her kids. It's not that. It is that the system itself makes it so hard to to do what needs to be done to keep it together for these kids. Now, it is true that in, in better resourced districts, people are thinking hard. And certainly in countries that are doing better by far than we are doing, the same COVID is producing A situation in which countries that have been better prepared have been figuring out ways to create what people are calling hybrid instruction, that is to say some face-to-face combined with some delivered by technology, which in the end may actually be a better form of instruction than conventional full-time face-to-face. I think they may succeed in this. There are signs that That is possible and it will happen. But my guess is that if things go along on the track that they are currently on, what we will see is that these technologies and and our progress in learning how to use them will put some countries even further ahead of us than they are now. Some districts within the United States even further ahead of others that are behind than they are now. And many kids who are further behind, much further behind than they are now. That is, on balance, what we will see is exacerbated
0: differences. Well, I guess we will... uh... Not end on a high note, um, but um, yeah, I hear I hear what you're saying, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm seeing I'm seeing similar things on my end. Um, and I appreciate you also calling out that it's not a product of teachers not working hard; it's a product of the system, um, you know, not being able to to support all students, and the fact that we are likely going to see a further widening of uh, an already deeply troubling gap in uh, in access to quality education. Um, do you have maybe one, one recommendation or one, if, if a school leader was listening to this um, in the US, one recommendation that you could give them to uh, begin to think about how to use COVID as an opportunity to transform the instruction that they're providing to their kiddos?
1: Oh my. Um, What what COVID has done in in well-resourced and well-run countries and school districts that has been really nice to see is creating a world in which kids who have already been positioned by their family, by their culture, by their school to learn independently, to take responsibility for their own learning to set goals for themselves and then manage themselves in order to achieve them, to give them kinds and levels of support that they haven't had before to do that on a scale and with persistence that wasn't possible before this. It's been (laughs) really interesting to see that happen. It's precisely because of that, that the best performing districts, schools and countries now see an opportunity to use these technologies to supplement what they've been doing in face-to-face in ways that they plan to do when COVID is gone. And so, um, while I don't think that's the highest priority for districts that are gonna wind up with untold numbers of kids who are a year and a half behind when this is over or two years behind. I do think in districts that are better off than that, um, they can look at the experience of some of the people here in the United States and elsewhere in the world who have used these technologies well and wisely for the purposes I have just mentioned and see how they can extend what they have been offering to make it even better that's not going to close the equity gap, but it will enrich the education of, of, of some kids in ways that might turn out to be important.
0: Yeah, and who knows, maybe accelerate some of uh, the sort of traditional ways that we think about student growth over time, academic achievement over time, maybe more of that independent work instead of, you know, a student growing a year. in a year Maybe more independent work, gets them growing a year and a half or two years to potentially make up for some of the some of the lost time, I mean, that's, you know, speculation, um, but it is this, is, this is something that I am particularly passionate about um, and have had conversations uh, with uh, some of my professors about is this content versus skills focus in the American schooling system. And with COVID, you know, you have an opportunity to move from what I view as more of a content-heavy focus um, to skills-based instruction and trying to support students during this time. Students are at home and building those independent skills. Uh, And I was hoping that I would see more of it uh, in September when, um, you know, as I was thinking about this in April and uh, May and June, uh, thinking about COVID as an opportunity, I haven't seen as much of it, uh, and I think that you're seeing that students at home are struggling because you can't just assume that a third grader or a sixth grader or a ninth grader knows what to do. You know, if you give them some of this asynchronous learning time, uh, so there needs to be more of that explicit, like, soft skill development. Um, but you know, whether that happens, uh, you know, at scale or whether it is going to be limited to some of these more high-performing systems, I think remains to be seen.
1: Well, I might, just as we close, Matt, I, 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 I wanna say that I'm really deeply, deeply worried about the large fraction of kids who either got nothing. Yeah. The school system couldn't locate them. Yeah. Uh, or provide them with some kind of connection to, uh, uh, to instruction. Um, or, 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 or because they just didn't get enough of it to make a difference, who will wind up way behind, um, way, way behind when, when, when full-time face-to-face instruction uh, comes back. And I think, I'm really hoping that a Biden administration takes that problem very, very seriously and asks itself, what can this country do for literally millions of kids who are so far behind that if we don't do something extraordinary, they they will struggle for the rest of their lives. And I don't, you know, it it could be something as simple and as straightforward as asking millions of American adults to spend two or three hours a week with some of these kids, helping them to learn to read, helping them to do simple arithmetic, um, helping them in the ways that you're talking about, um, kind of recover their self-confidence when they go back to school and have no idea what's going on because it's uh, beyond them. Um, I just think we, we somehow have to mobilize the country to help these kids, just sending them back to school. If they're a year and a half behind, what does that
0: mean? Right? Yeah, I agree with that. And I remain, I don't want to say cautiously optimistic, but one of the schools that I I taught at a charter school, granted, the work was unsustainable, working 100, 110, 120 hour weeks. But we had students come in in the fifth grade who are reading at a level A, a level B. I had a student who came from uh, Columbia in sixth grade who couldn't read a word of English. And by the end of sixth grade, he was reading above grade level. Uh, mm-hmm. Those kids who are reading at A and B grew. And by the time they left in eighth grade, they were reading at or above grade level. So it can be done. I think the, the fact that there, there needs to be you know a mass mobilization, I, I agree with that. And I hope that we, we see something like that because that would be, for me as an educator and somebody who's passionate about that, that would be deeply exciting. I think these are, you know, they're trying times, but they're also, um, you know, they're opportunities to, to do some, some amazing stuff. Well, I appreciate your time. I know we ran over, um, but thank you so much for, uh, for joining. I, I enjoyed this conversation very much. And, you know, for anybody out there, school leaders, teachers, anybody interested in the K-12 system, I would highly recommend the book. I'll uh, link it in the show notes. But um, yeah, Mark Tucker, thanks so much for coming on.
1: Thank you, Matt. Take care and good luck.
0: Thanks.